Thanks for supporting Word. You've committed to ensuring this podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region has continued now into its fifth season. Word has grown as a direct result of your contributions to KJZZ. If you're already a member, thanks a lot. If not, it's really easy to become one. Just click on the Donate tab at kjzz.org. Please consider making a gift of $10, $20, maybe even $30 a month to help ensure this kind of programming reaches you and others. But whatever is in your budget is the right amount. Thanks very much, and now we continue with Season 5. Word, I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, Nahai Raimo. National Haiku Writing Month concludes, and we have the winner of KJZZ's third annual haiku writing contest. This year's theme was, what's new for you during the pandemic? We'll talk to our winner. I don't write it often, but I started writing haikus in fourth grade. Plus, we continue sampling some more haiku from another Arizona writer. It's a bit of like my love for life put into words. But first, the annual Desert Nights Rising Stars Writers Conference, hosted by the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing at Arizona State University, celebrated its 17th year late last month. I had a chance to catch up with some of the presenters who appeared virtually this year, one year since the pandemic began. Ashley Naftool held a webinar on playwriting. I called it drafting a house people want to build because that kind of focuses on what, what I find most interesting about playwriting, which is that you're writing fiction that's not just meant for people to experience, but you're writing work that you want people to read and go, oh, I want to actually bring this to life. Like I want to actually take this thing and make it. So it's a kind of a, a, a class that treats playwriting like this, like it's the equivalent of writing a recipe or like a drafting a, pl- a blueprint for a house. Like you don't look at a recipe or chocolate cake and go, "That's chocolate cake." Like, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So much in the same way, I, when, when I look at the, when I look at a script of Hamlet, I don't think that's Hamlet. I think that's how you make Hamlet. Interesting. Unless you're a literature major or just a very interested reader, I feel like plays get sort of a short shrift, if you will, and that not a lot of people read them. It's like they expect to go see a play. Cool. That's fine. Do you talk about that at all? How to get people interested in reading plays? I kind of think like it's not really the ideal way to experience a play. Because again, I'm always going to privilege the primacy of actually seeing a play live. That's really how you should experience it. I mean, I think when you're seeing that and reading a play, like you, you miss a lot. I mean, it's interesting to see it in that kind of skeletal form, but it's like when you're in high school and you're reading like Arthur Miller or like you're reading Shakespeare, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting on a prose level to, to look at the language and how it's laid out. But ultimately, like, you're missing something, not hearing a, a variety of voices bringing that to life. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you have multiple voices in your head, which some of us do sometimes, <laughs> especially, especially when we've been confined to things like Zoom and being in our house forever and ever, it seems like. Oh, tell me about it. For a person who is thinking about becoming a playwright, aside from obviously watching a lot of plays maybe reading them, what kinds of advice would you have for them? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is just to be patient. I mean, you know, I, I know it's bleak right now, but 
there will come a period of time where people will be able to go back to theaters and do in performances things then and there will i think will be a, a hunger for original stories and new scripts um but the other thing i'd say too if anybody who wants to get into playwriting is you know i, I hate to say it but it's like it's definitely a, a love over gold situation like i mean right. most working playwrights like even even in broadway like they're they, they moonlight as tv writers it's very rare for anybody who do, make, who do a playwright to actually make a living off of it. But the trade-off is you get to make all these wonderful social connections and friendships. And, you know, writing is such a solitary craft. But the beauty of playwriting is it's one of the few times as a writer where you get to see how people interpret your work and respond to it in real time. It is certainly different than TV writing. You're writing for different things. Often in TV, you're writing to hook people through a commercial break, quite frankly, and unless you're lucky enough to be writing a full-length feature for one of the streaming services, right? Oh, absolutely. What do you enjoy most about playwriting, apart from some of the things you just described? I think the thing that I enjoy most um, is that when I write a script and I'm in the rehearsals for it, and I see the directors and the actors interpret it in ways that I didn't expect them to, mm, right? and their interpretation's better. And that happens every time I'm in a play. Every time I'm in a play, there have been moments where I'm like, I should have thought of that. Like, like all of a solution or an idea or an ad lib that's so perfect, that's so true, that it, it, th- those are the moments that I, I, I really love. I've had that experience in performing poetry in the past where I've delivered a line. And even though I've been very serious about it, I didn't realize the humor, for instance, in the line. I put it out there and several people laugh and I'm like well I didn't intend it that way but you have to go with that don't you yeah I mean it's such a magical moment too and and it is humbling as well because you know I I really feel like if you want to be a a good playwright you can't have uh, too much of an ego about your work like you have to be willing to kind of give your baby to somebody else and let them raise it and let them make mistakes with it and also let them do a better job with it I think almost all my plays do start with like a single scene that I'm working on and when I finish a scene I'm I it builds up to a larger work because I always find myself asking, like, who are these people? What happens to them after this? Let, you know, let, let's expand from this moment. And as I'm writing a play, oftentimes the characters will kind of just reveal themselves to me. And so, I, and so, you know, stuff like their quirks and like their interests just kind of build out organically from the story. But I also believe strongly when you're making characterizations as a playwright, you need to leave some things blank. Because mm-hmm. you got you to give the actors and directors a room for them to inject their own personality or their own ideas into it. So, like, I might write a character and be very specific about, like, their, like their vocal tics or about how they dress. But, like, I'll leave their blank backstory blank because I want the actor themselves to come up with their own version of it. Are you a fan of starting stories in the middle of action, what we call medias race? I, I think it's really good. I mean, uh, I've been following this screenwriter, and, and uh, Tony Toast, on Twitter. He writes for a lot of shows on TV, and he made an observation that like, when you're reading a, a, a screenplay, the first five or ten pages are usually the most essential pages because that's usually what most people read to make a decision or they want to keep reading. And he always says that that's why so many stories start in media res because you can start your first scene as, a, as an exciting high point. And usually when you start a story, the beginning of a story is rarely its most exciting point. So for sure, right. like they're, they're, when, I, when I write a script, when I write plays, I, I usually like to start with something that's a little high energy and interesting because you, you want to hook people immediately. And of course, if you're writing a comedy, you might want to start out with a scene that's extremely funny. Or if it's you know somewhere in between, maybe start out with something that's a little bit funny and build. Or if it's intensely dramatic, start out right there with something where people gasp, for instance, right? 
Right, yeah, you want, you want to set the kind of tone from the get-go. Now, about endings, because I always found this interesting. A, a professor of mine used to say, sometimes the best beginnings are the endings. And we were like, what, what do you mean by that? And the point was, you give yourself a life raft to swim to. If you come up with an ending, you sort of know where you're going. I've seen this technique applied, for instance, to people who participate in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. They come up with an ending because they know they have to hit 50,000 words in a month, and that's not an easy task. What is your writing process like? Do you ever come up with endings? Oh, never. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of, like George R. R. Martin once described that there are two types of storytellers, like there's pantsers and plotters. Exactly. Like a and, and I, I'm more of a pantser where like I'll, I'll come up with a first scene and I'll, I'll have a vague idea where it'll go. But yeah, you, I, I, I almost never write anything and know exactly how it's going to end from the, from, the, from the jump. I kind of think that if I did know how it end, I probably wouldn't write it because I'd, there'd be no mysteries for me to answer at that point. Part of being a writer is that you do kind of want to entertain yourself. I mean, that's one selfish aspect of it, right? And so it seems to me you're kind of suggesting that if there was no entertainment in this for me and and I couldn't discover who these characters are, what's the point? Oh, 100%. Because it takes a, a while to write anything. So I'm like, yeah, like, if there's no surprises in it for me and if, if, and if I can't shock myself or interest myself like why bother and also if i can't if i can't intrigue myself with the story how am i going to expect anybody else to feel that way about it when they start reading it ashley naftul i want to thank you so much for coming to word and talking to us a little bit about the act of writing plays and we appreciate your time thanks so much ashley oh absolutely thank you so much tom Ashley Naftool works in marketing for Rio Salado College as a day job. KJZZ is licensed to the Maricopa County Community College District and is a service of Rio Salado College. You can find out more about Ashley on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We continue with another voice from this year's Desert Nights Rising Stars Writers Conference. Catherine Lim has a deep interest in historical fiction and her presentation was entitled Queering History, Writing LGBTQIA Historical Fiction. She says, in historical fiction about queer lives, one question that often arises is whether there's any evidence that the characters are gay, or if they are fictional, are their situations accurately portrayed? Lim has a forthcoming novel on the way. My novel is about the based on the life of Grace Kelly and the Princess of Monaco and what would have happened had she been able to get away from Monaco and act with Hitchcock. So the idea for it happened when I was working in Monaco, actually I was teaching out there. And it was interesting because initially I thought, okay, I bought into the fairy tale 
of Grace Kelly and Prince Renier, and it turned out that it wasn't so happy, that the marriage was kind of falling apart already at the time. I mean, in, 19, in the 60s. And, but Monaco just seems to have this image that, you know, they basically built Monaco, right? That they built the right. principality. Yeah. So I wanted to dig deeper beneath the surface, and I actually got to talking to some people who had known her or had known the family. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating book, and I, I can't wait to read it. What is it that you like about the genre of historical fiction? I think it enables us to imagine what it would have been like in certain times in the past. Like, And you can think about it from a perspective of going into the so-called interstices of history, stuff that isn't in the biographies, stuff that you have to think about quite significantly. Like, for instance... What do the love letters between like two people, what's said and what's not said, or some events that happened, like big canvas events like World War II, but then there's the lives of normal people, real people in between those events. What is it like for them? That allows us to imagine and to dream that in a way that contemporary fiction might not. Part of that is inventing dialogue, right? Because if you just read historical facts, those are there and you can be intrigued by them, but maybe not entertained? Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. If you read just a nonfiction account, it could be some event that's fascinating, but then the telling of it wouldn't be. So yeah, the entertainment factor is pretty high, and it's probably the priority in historical fiction anyway, because people love a good story. We're hardwired, I think, for stories. Everybody, every human being. And if you're reading just a biography... I'm not saying that there aren't good biographies that actually tell a great story, but it's easier to get into that, slip into that kind of fictive dream, as it were, if you have fiction by your side. Now, your particular window into the Desert Nights Rising Stars Conference at Piper Center, and of course, I suppose you would be here in person uh, were it not for a worldwide pandemic. And that's one of the changes that's been made in so many academic conferences uh, is that we're not face-to-face, right? Tell me a little bit about your particular presentation. So my presentation was specifically about LGBT fiction In terms of my presentation, I was talking about how generally when we have LGBT historical fiction, there's always unanswered questions about the identity of some of these historical characters. And I was speaking specifically about Varian Fry. We have just a a little bit of an echo there. Varian, V-A-R-I-A-N, Varian, quite a strange name. Yeah, I think it's something to do with some Roman history or classics. Yeah, I've never heard that name, Varian, before. That's quite an interesting name. And he was an American in the 40s who helped a lot of the artists and writers based in France to get out of the country before they got sent to concentration camps. And so there was a controversy surrounding that because there have been some critics who have said, well, we don't have any actual evidence that Brian Fry was a gay man, so how can you prove it? Why are you putting on gay love story? So I just gave a few examples of the reaction when there are LGBT characters in historical fiction, and if we can't prove that, is there, do we need evidence? But you're not going to have evidence necessarily because, like, say, in the 50s or before that, 
you would have a situation where the people were trying to hide their love affairs or their relationships, those letters or drafts of messages would never see the light of day. So you wouldn't see it ever in an archive. And so you're saying even in France in the 40s, this was uh, the love that dare not speak its name. Yeah, exactly. So that was why there was a controversy in, there was a book by Julie Oranger that came out in 2019 called The Flight Portfolio. And that was what, that was what I was talking about, among other things, among other examples about these LGBT characters. And even now, there are critics who say that we shouldn't go there for lack of evidence, meaning we shouldn't speak about whether these characters are LGBT or not. We should just stick to the facts. And if we don't have facts, we shouldn't even write it. It's like a censoring. And so I, there have been controversies also about a man writing from the perspective of, uh, say, a, a lesbian woman or vice versa. That was why it was a, we had a lively discussion on the chat about how writers should take this. Should they feel that it's their story to tell or... Does it not matter as long as they have, they feel that they've rendered an emotional truth? That's kind of surprising to me that even in 2021, critics would be saying the kinds of things that you've illustrated. I certainly understand the concept of, you know, if something is put out there to the world, if you will, it's open to interpretation. It doesn't belong to the author anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have things like close reading to fall back on. Yeah, that's right. Because we are all entitled to our own opinions. And as I said, like if the emotional truth of the story is rendered, then every reader has their own reaction and you can't please everybody. But in the end, the writer has to feel is the world, okay, the world as I know it, or at least a portion of my reading universe, is it better for the fact that I've put that work out there? And if it is, then you know you should be happy in that accomplishment. And that's what's most important. Otherwise, you would just be hamstrung by your own insecurities. And, you know, you have to overcome that to be able to even write the novel or biography or et cetera in the first place. So you have to have the courage to put your work out there. Yes, very well said. Catherine Lim, I want to thank you so much for talking to me. And I appreciate you joining us. And thanks so much for coming to Word and talking to us about this, I think, kind of an unsung topic, quite frankly, still even in 2021. Thank you, Tom. You can find out more about Catherine Lim on her website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this podcast Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. If you're feeling a little too distant from your community, the KJZZ mobile app is a great way to stay connected. Stream the station, read the latest Arizona news, or browse for a podcast. Let us help you stay connected on the KJZZ mobile app. It's free in Google Play and the App Store. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We continue with our final voice from this year's Desert Nights Rising Stars Writers Conference. Cynthia Palayo is an international Latino book award winning author. Her debut adult horror and thriller novel is 
Children of Chicago, and she presented on the topic of folklore, legend, and myth in horror. I began our recent discussion by asking her how the pandemic has affected readers of the genre. I think people are straying away from any type of media, whether horror comic books or horror films or novels that deal with a dystopian type reality. I think we're living in a dystopian type reality. Right. And so we've been seeing a lot of really interesting type works. Um, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's Mexican Gothic, Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indian, Josh Mallerman, he released the sequel to Bird Box, Mallory. It's been pretty interesting to see not only a variety of horror in literature, but also in film. We have Shudder. It's like the Netflix of horror. And so there's a you know continual new selection of horror films. And I think people like horror. I feel like I know why people don't like horror. So maybe I could start with that. And if I upset people, sorry, but I feel like horror speaks to our fears ultimately. And sometimes we don't want to address those fears. There's a lot of anxiety um, around that. But ultimately, what is the ultimate unknown? The ultimate unknown is we don't know when we're going to die. Each and every one of us, each and every single person that we love will one day die. And I think horror constantly talks to that, to the unknown, uh, to the unknown space, unknown realities. And I think that those of us that do like horror like myself, and I consume a lot of horror media. Um, I like it for twofold. I feel like I'm watching an event uh, develop and I can control my anxiety through it because I know it's not really real. Yeah. Um, and then another reason why I like it is because it teaches me to understand the types of events I should be scared of. Not necessarily that a, a doll is going to come to life and <laughs> kill me, <laughs> but perhaps there's a man that is in a parking lot and it's not well lit. And he asks me if I can help him with, move something into his trunk. For, from watching plenty of horror movies and reading true crime, I understand that that's probably not a good idea to help a stranger right. in a dark parking lot. I think it varies for everyone. You indicated death is the only certainty in life. Certain types of horror films people react to differently, and there are many different types. It seems to me as well that you're more interested in sort of the psychological aspect of horror films, again, away from the gore and the blood and the guts. Psychologically, I'm fascinated with why people are fascinated with slashers, but not the haunted house trope, or why are some people fascinated with maybe the gothic trope and romance versus, you know, a supernatural, because there's a, there's a very wide range of genres and subgenres within horror and not everyone <laughs> likes uh, one genre or the other. Genre. For example, I don't like body horror, which is starting, which has been picking up considerably during the pandemic. And what do you mean by that? Uh, think of um, the fly. Have you ever seen sure, the of Jeff, Jeff? Yeah, the, the fly, where your body becomes host to something that you can't control, or your body mutates somehow, whether through biological means or supernatural means. But I've seen a lot of interest in that. I mean, I feel like people have more time on their hands to consume content. That might be a piece of it. I, I truthfully don't know. It'd be interesting to do some surveys about that. How long have you been interested in the genre of horror? 
ever since you could remember as a kid? Ever, ever since I could remember. Um, my very first memory as my older brother was babysitting me. And this is what in the eighties, early eighties. And my parents weren't home and he's, he put on a nightmare on Elm street <laughs> and they turned the lights off. And my very first image I remember is that scene where Freddy Krueger has his arms outstretched right. in sure. the alley. And so I was what five or five or six seeing that. And I was terrified in that moment. But after that, every time we would go to the video store, even at that age, I wanted to watch something scarier and more scarier. And growing up, I probably rented every single horror movie in the horror <laughs> store. Um, I loved Alfred Hitchcock and The Twilight Zone, uh, The Outer Limits. So I oh, watched sure. a lot. anything that I could watch on television, you know, that was accessible if I couldn't get to the video store. They just became my friends. And so I wasn't a popular kid. I wasn't very well. Uh, I was awkward. <laughs> I am awkward. <laughs> um, so socially, you know, I lacked maybe skills or uh, maybe I wasn't the right kind of cool kid. And so that's who I turned to at night was my horror characters and they were my friends and I watched them and in a sense they were the other and I always felt like I as well was the other and while I didn't have a strong social system as a teen I always had my horror comics and comic books and novels that I could turn to. When I was young one of the very first that I remember getting scared by was Halloween the original and I think my sister probably turned me on to that when she was five years older. And then, but the, the time that I remember being scared the most was being in the kitchen of my grandparents watching The Exorcist. I'd never seen it. And my grandmother was like, okay, well, I will watch it with you. And this is in the winter. So I certainly did not expect anybody to be outside. My grandfather, unbeknownst to me, has some type of skeleton mask. And he runs around outside and he chose the perfect moment to scare the you-know-what out of me. And, you know, I'm kind of freaked out in the kitchen and he knocks on the window where the sink is and, you know, says, Rawr! and it just absolutely terrified me. And I could not sleep at all that night. That's really the first time in my life. I must have been around, I don't know, 9, 10. I had seen Amityville Horror, for instance, the original. But that one, that just really, that movie got to me on a psychological level, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Exorcist has that effect. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the very first time I watched it, but I remember... The first time seeing it thinking this is this is intense I was you know probably a teenager and it's it's one of those films that I've watched quite a lot and it's still really effective you know there's a, a lot of horror films probably aren't effective over time because society's fears change or you know they shift but one thing about the exorcist and the possession story is this fear of losing control over yourself yes right or your or your loved ones or watching your loved ones lose control over their themselves so i think that's still something that can be terribly frightening well cynthia palayo i want to thank you so much for coming to word and talking to us about your recent presentation at the desert nights rising stars conference at asu and just sharing your love and knowledge of horror with us briefly are you working on anything that will be out 
anytime soon? My crime thriller, mystery, and horror, as well as a little bit of nonfiction genre blends novel, Children of Chicago, which takes place in the city of Chicago and is a retelling of the Pied Piper fairy tale, is out on ebook now in paperback. And I am working on the sequel of that right now. Awesome. Cynthia, thanks so much again for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You can find out more about Cynthia Palayo on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. KJZZ is an important part of our life. Every time I listen, I learn something. The pandemic meant canceled weddings last year. There's also been a big drop in divorces. It's a great way to stay informed. Pacific waters are in a cooler La Nina pattern, which typically leads to dry winters for Arizona. You get a lot of good information. Thinning can help reduce the impact of forest fires and benefit wildlife and watersheds. Trust KJZZ for the perfect mix of BBC, NPR, and KJZZ News. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Last month, we held KJZZ's third annual haiku writing contest where we asked people to submit original haiku on the theme, What's New for You During the Pandemic? We also featured several haiku writers on previous episodes of Word, which are in our archive if you want to check them out. We thought it would be nice to talk to one more person as we put a cap on this year's haiku coverage. And so I caught up with author Laura Lee Bond recently, who just released a book of haiku entitled The Love Around Us. I have always really loved words. And I didn't really get very serious about my writing, though, until I was in my 30s after grad school. And I I got more disciplined about writing. And have you preferred shorter writing in the past or longer form writing? Probably shorter to begin with. Uh, I did write a novel. It's sort of gathering dust at the back of my bookshelf. This book that I recently wrote is a collection of essays and haiku. And I started writing haiku in 2007. It's just kind of a way to be creative at this job that was not all that creative for me. So anyway, I sent in a haiku to my friend in HR every Thursday and When I was let go at that job in the great uh, 2008 wave of unemployment, I took the writing practice with me. And since then, I've been sending out a haiku to a list of friends and family and friends of friends and family every Thursday. Because that's when my timesheet was due. That's cool. It's something that's been with you now for, what, 13, 14 years, I guess. Um, Yeah. And it's culminated into this book called The Love Around Us, which is just out. Is this the first book of this nature that you've ever put out? Yeah, it is. And actually, honestly, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I don't know that I would have written it. One of the haiku that I sent out was about a friend who needed a hug. And it reminded me of this other time that I'd been really lonely and feeling totally isolated in my life. And when I sent out that haiku, I sent out Another haiku that I had written years ago in 2008, along with an essay about an experience that I'd had back in grad school. And the response was overwhelming. People wrote that they loved it and 
it made them happy and it made them cry. And I think everybody could really relate to feeling so isolated and lonely. And uh, another friend wrote and said, hey, I, you have all those essays. Maybe you should think about putting them into a book. Yeah, I really enjoy that kind of interplay. Of course, I could read a book of essays or I could read a book of haiku. It makes no difference to me, but I like the marriage of the two in there. Some people have this issue about reading haiku, like they don't want a lot of exposition. Others really appreciate having a deeper window into some of the poems that have been written, particularly um, maybe a difficult one, or maybe they're just curious, you know, what was the inspiration, for instance, for this particular haiku? You touched a little bit on why you started writing haiku. I think it's proven to have lasting power, but maybe in this pandemic, I wonder what it is that has lasting power. I think the great thing about haiku is that it's so accessible for people who aren't really into poetry. And I'll be honest, I kind of include myself in that. I <laughs> I love writing, but I don't necessarily think of myself as a poet. But haiku is, is so, it's deceptively simple, right? It's three lines and it's like jump, dive, emerge. And it's, I, it's something that everybody can do. And so, especially during the time of the pandemic and, and moving forward, it's, Art is important and poetry is a form of art. And I think to have something that's that relatable and accessible for everyone and every day is super important. Well, and I feel like you just wrote a haiku inadvertently when you said jump, dive, emerge. Now we would have to talk about what our concepts of haiku are because some people say, hey, it's a five, seven, five format, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Others divide it into two parts. Where do you fall on that? Well, yeah, uh, I do the 575. And I would add a heavy sigh to that because I started out that way. And the people on the list sort of expect it. So um, I can assure you that when I don't send one out that has the correct number of syllables, somebody will let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's funny. okay. But, sure. um, but I do feel like everybody's thoughts have a cadence. And, and when I'm journaling, it I'll have a phrase that stands out. And a lot of the time, inadvertently, it's either five or seven syllables. So I think that just happens to be mine. But I know a lot of people consider, especially in English, where we have so many monosyllabic words, right, that a three, five, three is a good way to go. And I just, I think that it's important for people to find their own rhythm. I have found myself over the years thinking in partial haiku. Sometimes just a five-syllable sort of idea will come into my head. And I might jot that down, you know, on a scratch piece of paper or a post-it note or something like that and save it for later. I don't have the full form yet. What's your process like in writing haiku? Anything close to that? Totally. Um, sometimes it's just a word. I love it when I get a five-syllable word. I just wrote one that the, the first line of the haiku was mysteriously. And I, that felt like a springboard, which is what hi, a total haiku often feels like. But sometimes just a certain phrase will catch my attention. And I'll think there must be something there. And over the years, I've sort of come to the realization that I'll think I'm thinking one thing. And I think maybe I'm alone in that, but if I put it out there, other people totally relate to it. Or 
they come back at me with a completely different interpretation, sure. which I adore. Right. <laughs> Some people don't like that. I was talking to others about that very thing. As authors, we have to be real about that. There's things like connotation and denotation. What is a word's dictionary definition, for instance, but what does that word also connote? I've used the example in the past as well that words change. For instance, the word awful used to mean full of awe, not what we know it as today. And so language play is certainly integral to haiku. Well, Laura, I wondered if you'd take us out with a haiku from the book. I would love to. This is from the opening, actually, where I introduce myself. Do something you love for today and every day, ripples in a pond. It's beautiful and tranquil as well. Were you actually on the edge of a pond when you thought of that? Does nature help you write? Um, Nature does help me write. That one, I was not. It was actually, Thursday happened to fall on Valentine's Day that year, and... I didn't want to write about the kind of traditional hearts and flowers or whatever, but I do feel that it's important to do something you love and that that has repercussions in the world that you may not even know. And that's part of why I put the book out because it's a bit of, of like my, my love for life put into words. My writing is my ripple in the pond. It's just, that's how I put it out there. Also, I'd like to add that my original haiku did not have a certain word in the second line, and I got called out on that. (laughs) That's funny. Well, uh, Laura Lee Bond, I really appreciate you coming to Word and talking to us about your new book of haiku and essays. It's called The Love Around Us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. It was really a treat. You can find out more about Laura Lee Bond on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for supporting the literary arts in Arizona and the region. We'll be right back with our winner of KJZZ's third annual haiku writing contest. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moss shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moss stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. KJZZ is your source for news. And now when you say, I heard it on KJZZ, you can gesture proudly with your KJZZ mug from the KJZZ shop. There are hats and shirts and more, and each purchase supports the station. Take a look at shop.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks to everyone who submitted their haiku and answered our prompt, What's new for you during the pandemic? We received nearly 550 entries last month, and our randomly selected winner is Misako Yamazaki from the Phoenix metro region. I caught up with her on the phone recently and congratulated her. Hi. Hi, I'm trying to reach Misako. This is Misako. Oh, great. Hi, this is Tom Maxidon from KJZZ, and I just wanted to let you know that you are selected as the random winner of KJZZ's third annual haiku writing contest. That's 
awesome. I just want to ask you a couple questions. First of all, how long have you been writing haiku? I don't write it often, but I started writing haikus in fourth grade. Oh, wow. Well, how about you read your haiku for us? Isolation. This loneliness aches like a chronic illness, a mute bird in my chest. Oh, wow. Can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration for that poem? Well, I struggle with endometriosis, which is a chronic illness, and basically I'm in pain like all the time, and so that's been really hard. And, you know, not only that, but on top of everything, you know, with the pandemic, not being able to go out or see any of my friends because I am immunocompromised, and that kind of just added to the loneliness that the the pandemic has brought. I'm sorry to hear that, and uh, Misako, thank you so much for sharing that story and your beautiful haiku with us. Please stay well and take care, Misako. Best of luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to Misako Yamazaki and everyone who participated in this year's haiku writing contest. We look forward to keeping it going next year. Word is going on spring break, and we will be back soon with more discussion about the literary arts in Arizona in the region. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening and supporting public radio. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.